You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Hi, I'm Perry Carpenter, and you're listening to Eighth Layer Insights. Here's a fundamental truth about anything related to technology, infrastructure, or really anything that we create. If we make something, someone else will come along and find ways to misuse the thing that we create, or they'll find ways to use it in unexpected ways. I've talked about the law of unintended consequences before. It's something that we struggle with across lots of areas of life. And in the field of cybersecurity, one of the biggest areas where we see the law of unintended consequences at work is with our email. When you think about it, we've created an amazing infrastructure that connects people around the world. It helps scientists share research, families stay in touch, and in many ways, email is the backbone of how businesses communicate. But with all of that comes the unintended consequences. We face a constant tidal wave of spam and advertisements and newsletters and online harassment and yeah, phishing. Phishing has become the attack vector of choice for cyber criminals because it works. There are inherent flaws in how our current email infrastructure was designed and these flaws make it pretty easy to impersonate someone or hide something nefarious within a message. And it's easy to play with emotional triggers that will get people to act without thinking rationally. One person who knows quite a bit about this is James Linton, also known as the email prankster. On today's show, I'll be talking with James about his time exploiting some of these fundamental flaws. We'll get into all the who's, the what's, the when's, the why's, the how's, and a lot more. Let's dive in. We just learned a prankster tricked White House officials into replying to his emails. There's a guy from the UK and he calls himself Email Prankster. An anonymous man who lives, I guess, in the UK, he tweets under the name Sign On Reborn. He describes himself as an email prankster. Who has had email conversations with Anthony Scaramucci before he got fired. A prankster has tricked White House officials and others, including the former communications director, Anthony Scaramucci. That wouldn't be a weird thing, except he was posing as Reince Priebus. The self-described email prankster who has fooled a number of White House officials and bank executives, whose exploits we've told you about before, has now apparently fooled both Harvey Weinstein himself and his now former advisor, Lisa Bloom. He has sent emails to Tom Bosser, Eric Trump, he has posed as Jared Kushner, the, the Homeland Security Advisor, said he thought it was he was talking with Jared Kushner. It wasn't. It was his prankster. He gave him his personal email address saying, Jared, anytime you need me, just email me at home. This is oh. the guy in charge of, cy- of the cyber, of our security. <sighs> yeah. I once got head of Homeland Security to accept an invite to a party. I was Jared Kushner at the time. Um, We haven't said in such. On today's show, my discussion with James Linton. We'll talk about what led up to him deciding to take a virtual joyride, exploiting the fundamental flaws in how people interact with email, what he did, who he pranked, and what he's learned about human nature and himself. Welcome to Eighth Layer Insights. This podcast is a multidisciplinary exploration into the complexities of human nature and how those complexities impact everything from why we think the things that we think to why we do the things that we do and how we can all make better decisions every day. This is Eighth Layer Insights. Season two, episode five. I'm Perry Carpenter. We'll be right back after this message. So, what's a con game? It's a fraud that works by getting the victim to misplace their confidence in the con artist. In the world of security, we call confidence tricks social engineering. And as our sponsors at Know Before can tell you, 
human error is how most organizations get compromised. What are some of the ways organizations are victimized by social engineering? We'll find out later in the show. If you've been listening to this show for a while, you'll know that I usually like to dedicate each show to a specific theme and interview multiple experts to help flesh out the topic. But each season, I also want to make time to dedicate an episode or two for an in-depth discussion with just one person. And this is one of those times. My guest today is James Linton. But before we get into the interview, I need to help set the stage with a story. Not one I want to tell, but one I kind of need to tell because it relates so much to the themes that come out in James's interview. So my teenage years were in the 80s and early 90s, back when most online activity was through dial-up modems using individual services like AOL, CompuServe, or bulletin board systems, and even back before caller ID was a thing on everybody's telephones. And every house had a big, thick phone book sitting right next to their telephone. As you can imagine, that made prank calling a pretty easy thing to get away with. And now, if you've ever seen me in real life, you'll know that I'm not the kind of person who spends a lot of time outdoors in the summer. I'm extremely fair-complected, and I can get sunburned just by walking across a parking lot. So when you look at the ingredients that I just mentioned, the early age of online technologies, pre-caller ID with phones, a bored teenager in the summer who needs to stay indoors, and you might get an idea of where things could go. Luckily, I never got in big trouble for some of the things that I tried, and I never caused any kind of damage. But I did have that magical mixture of boredom and curiosity that all too often turns toxic. I remember one of the prank calls that I used to do was I would set up recordings of an office environment behind me along with typing and phones ringing and the murmur of conversations. And then I'd open up that magic book, the phone book that of course gave me a listing of people's names, their phone numbers, and their home address. I'd pick a name and dial. Hello? When somebody answered, I'd identify myself as an employee of the National Earthquake Research Center, which to my knowledge isn't a real thing. It just sounds like a real thing. Then using the phone book, I'd be able to ask for someone by name and I'd have that person confirm that they lived at the address listed. And after they confirmed, I'd say, wow, I'm really glad that I managed to reach you because, you see, we've been monitoring a fault line that runs beneath your property, and our instruments indicate that a sizable earthquake is imminent within the next 24 hours. We recommend that you evacuate. Yeah, that always led to some interesting conversations. I also did similar things on old school bulletin board systems where I learned a few tricks that allowed me to send system messages where it looked like the admin or the BBS owner would open up a console within the system and begin directly communicating with the end user. Luckily, when the BBS owner found out about that, he didn't ban me or report me to anyone. Instead, he asked how I did it and I showed him and then he gave me some mentorship on other aspects of the board. So he kind of brought me under his wing a little bit and satisfied my curiosity that way. And I think a lot of us who love technology and were curious and grew up during that time did very similar things when that combination of curiosity and boredom hit. On today's show, you'll hear some echoes of that theme as I sit down with James Linton, who not too long ago, just back in 2017, gained international notoriety as the email prankster for a string of widely publicized activity targeting high-powered individuals, from bank officials to celebrities to political figures. James's story has a lot of nuance, and I don't want you to miss that, so I'm keeping editing to a minimum. Let's hear from James. 
So I say kind of, hi, I'm James Linton. That kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. Yeah. So, hi, I'm James Linton. I am a social engineer, I guess, mainly. And uh, I explore how tech interacts with humans. And then let's do one more, if you're comfortable with it, and have you say your name and maybe, you know, I'm the guy that socially engineered X. Pick your favorite thing out of that. Yeah, yeah, sure. Hi, I'm James Linton. I used to be known as the email prankster in 2017. I once got the head of Homeland Security to accept an invite to a party. I was Jared Kushner at the time. Um, we haven't stayed in touch. But yeah, since then, I've been fascinated with InfoSec, basically, and went to work in threats, and now I'm working in awareness. Yeah, fantastic. That's That, I think, is is pretty good. Yeah, I always forget to give it some jazz hands. I'm very bad at kind of. <laughs> yeah, you got to be your own PR person a little bit. Why don't we get into it then? I'm going to ask you a strange question. If somebody were to come in and make a documentary or a movie about your life, what would that opening scene look like? Interesting. Now, would we start in the future beyond now? I think in a weird way, uh, with the benefit of hindsight, I think it would start at the end of, what, sixth form in the UK, as people are starting to move on to university. Although I didn't know it at the time um, that I was autistic, I really struggled to kind of disconnect from school life and having, you know, living in a village with my family and things like that. There was a, a sort of resistance to being able to move on and do um, the university thing, I guess. And I was really quite jealous of people that were going on. So I think that was quite a defining moment. I had aspirations before that that were all linked to going to university and it was just watching those slip away a bit, I guess, but not really understanding why and not really being able to kind of course correct it. It seemed I couldn't understand why it wasn't, I wasn't evolving at the same, uh, the same way as my peers, I guess. I was very into art. I always wanted to be a car designer when I was younger. That was mm. as a child. All my dad had to do was give me a ream of paper and I'd be quiet for the next eight weeks. Um, but I just used to draw cars endlessly. Um, and it never wasn't going to happen that I would be a car designer. Um, so I guess before, as I was coming to the final years uh, towards the end of school, I was starting to discover graphic design and, I felt, I guess, that was less imposing. There wasn't as much maths and uh, engineering involved in it. And I, I just gradually started lowering my sights as I started to hit resistance to um, making the leap, I guess, into young adulthood, as it was. Um, and I went to a local college and I stayed at home, stayed with a group of friends that um, hadn't gone on to university either. And my expectation was to go on after that, but um, unfortunately, I was, I was kind of in a bit of a bad way, uh, mental health-wise, towards the end of my college time. I actually came to quite a, um, an acute bout of psychosis, actually, uh, which actually hospitalized me. So at that stage, I was I had nothing. I had no, no I didn't have my career anymore. I didn't have um, a university to go to. And I, potentially, I was looking at never having my sanity back. Um, and this was all pressure from not being able to um, understand or, or reconcile what was going on at the time. I, you know, I couldn't understand why what I wanted to happen, which I'd seen it happen to people in uh, years above me. I couldn't understand why I couldn't replicate that. And I guess that was a struggle I had all the way up until I found out um, I was autistic, which was only two years ago. I'm, what, 43 now, I think? Um, so yeah, it's been, it's been a challenging period of, um, my life from then until, um, more recently, but yeah, it, there's always been a few hurdles to get over, shall we say? Yeah. Um, but I wouldn't, I, you know, I've, I've got no regrets to be, to be perfectly honest. I think I've had, um, an interesting life if nothing else. <laughs> James's late in life diagnosis for autism really resonates with me because I was also diagnosed with autism in my early 40s. 
I had always known that the way I had interacted with the world and processed social situations was slightly different. Um, and I had seen many different depictions of autism in books and on TV and in movies. But it only hit home with me that I may actually be autistic when I was reading a book called The Journal of Best Practices. It's a marriage and relationship book written by an autistic man that was trying to uncover the secrets of the way that relationships work, and specifically his relationship with his wife. And as he would explain his mindset and give examples of how he thought about and approached situations, I kept thinking, that's just like me. And that realization led me to find a qualified diagnostician and then Long story short, I ended up with a diagnostic confirmation that I'm autistic. There are certainly a lot of myths and misconceptions and misinformation and even more when it comes to neurodiversity. And today's show is not the venue to discuss those. But if you want to learn more about my personal journey with autism, I'll put a link in the show notes to a talk that I gave at DEF CON a few years ago, as well as at least a podcast or two where I've discussed it. Okay, let's get back to James. But I wouldn't, I, you know, I've, I've got no regrets, to be, to be perfectly honest. I think I've had um, an interesting life, if nothing else. You definitely have had an interesting life. I want to uh, ask one other question. So if you were just diagnosed two years ago hmm. and had all of that intervening time, what fell into place or, or what was your reaction whenever you finally got the diagnosis? What led up to you getting it? And then what was your reaction when you heard the news? Um, what kind of led up to it was, I, was, I really, maybe six, seven uh, years ago when I met my current girlfriend, I really tried to bring to a close my fluctuating mental health. I'd had various diagnoses and things like that. I had a very good doctor, but it was actually... At a point where I switched to a different doctor, he was more into doing the kind of DSM five kind of questions and stuff like that. And he actually snuck in a page which was on autism. And I was speaking to him, and he goes, "A lot of this does point towards you being autistic." And it was crazy in a way because I'd I'd speculated so many times because when I was given a diagnosis that wasn't correct, I'd feel settled for a day or two, but then I'd just kind of know that it didn't fit and that kind of it feeling such a personal and such a unique um illness illness that only i could see um was you know really quite isolating i guess in some ways so to find out that actually no you are autistic it's not this one-off thing that's just concocted in your head just for you you know and and that brought a load of relief all the things that i'd been trying to change in my life i realized were probably fairly hard set. They were things that I may never be very good at. So I started to go easier on myself, I guess, and, and not think, oh, you know, why couldn't I walk in front of everyone and take the top of a champagne bottle off with a sword and you know, all these kind of weird things that growing yeah. up during the 80s, you know, all the uh, action films and stuff. That, that was what I was kind of soaking up, I guess, and what I thought, I, you know, I could take parts of that and use it in my life. And I just found that, certain things were really tricky and I couldn't figure out why that was, I guess. Yeah. So it seems like you had heard of autism before and seen some examples of neurodivergence and, and potentially thought of yourself in that category. Is that, did I, did I hear that right? Yeah, definitely. As soon as you mentioned it, me and my girlfriend looked at each other and it seemed so obvious all of a sudden. And I was hopeful that finally the, the search and the wondering was over and then little things would pop in my head like, hang on a minute, you've owned three Golf GTIs in a row, which were the same model, but obviously one slightly new ones. And I was like, hmm, not exactly really straying <laughs> with variety there, are you, James? And all these little um, events in my life would suddenly, I could view them um, more compassionately on why I struggled in that situation. You know, if I was in a, a really busy room at Christmas and I went off and had to have a lie down, I was drained. And that makes sense now and I can manage that. Yeah, it didn't change my life. It just gave me some idea of the places where I should focus and, and other areas where I needed to look after myself a bit more. Yeah. 
And so this diagnosis came after the email prankster um, yeah. part of your life. Did some puzzle pieces come together then? Uh, I guess I'd always had a very obsessive nature towards things that I really got a lot of enjoyment from. Um, and definitely the, the pranks that I was doing became a bit of an obsession. I mean, nobody, <laughs> nobody, nobody's beaten it since or even attempted it because it would be utter madness to try and <laughs> trick that <laughs> many people one after the other in, in such a short period. But again, I think it was at the time my, my personal circumstances put pressure on me and, and that in a way I think was a bit of escapism, a bit of a cry for help. And also it was good for me because it felt good to be good at something. People were sitting up and taking notice. Yeah. So walk me up to the time that you wrote the first email. What was that initial spark that made you say, I really want to see if I can get away with this. And then how did you put it together? I did a kind of proof of concept at first, and this was at work. This was um, me pretending essentially to be my CEO and to give um, account handlers at work a few got a secret mission, a few were told they were going to represent the, the company at the intercompany games, um, <laughs> be a swimming contest and stuff. Uh, that one really backfired on me, and this is do not pretend to be somebody when you're in the same building as them. This prank had kind of, um, I'd said, you know, congratulations, <laughs> we're gonna send you um, off to, I think it was in the Middle East somewhere to do this intercompany games. And he was a fairly new starter, but I did have a stooge that was kind of um, on chat and she was going, ha ah, yeah, he's fallen for it. So I was basking in my uh, glory at being such an amazing social engineer. I didn't even know what a social engineer was back then. I just thought I'd been um, wise ass I guess and then I turned on my chair obviously smiling away and I saw him walking towards my CEO um, and my insides tried to become my outside <laughs> it was it was a hugely stressful moment it was kind yeah. of a mixture of adrenaline I think my body was just trying to pass out so I could be carried out of the situation but he went walking right up to my CEO and I was being hugely interested, but trying not to show that I was hugely interested. Um, I could see my CEO looking up from his desk kind of very quizzically. Obviously you would be if somebody was coming to, as I found out, to thank him for the opportunity. Um, luckily, I kind of managed to, to, to bluff it as um, he was walking off from the CEO afterwards, completely uh, dumbfounded. Uh, I heard the CEO say, send me a copy of it. And I kind of jumped in at that point and said, oh, I'll send it over to you because I knew if he forwarded it to the CEO, he, he would find out I'd actually created an email address mm -hmm. in his name. It wasn't just some <laughs> some prank that didn't have some infrastructure. Um, I'd actually gone to the trouble of making this Gmail account. So that was the genesis. That was where I realized the, the kind of power you could have with it um, and how much trust people had. And after that particular point, I'd done other things at work as well, but after that, I, I thought, you know, this is getting a bit too much of um, a white knuckle ride. Let's let's call it a day. Q2 months later, I had a bit of a falling out with my high street bank. Um, we went through the various ways that we could both put our case forward and, you know, the, the bank won. And, you know, I, I couldn't argue with that. All ways to question that were had reached an end. Um, and then I was just watching Netflix on uh, my bed one day and I saw it was the AGM of uh, this particular bank. AGM stands for Annual General Meeting. It's really just the annual shareholders meeting. Shareholders with voting rights come to vote on issues like who gets appointed to the board or different directions that the company or the bank will take, executive compensation, dividend payments, all of those kind of things. And it had been a bit of a tough AGM. Um, and I only kind of glanced through the story. I could see that the chairman was there and he'd said some words and, um, you know, it, it sounded like it was a bit of a tense time. And I don't know, I, I don't know the exact moment I decided to do it, but all of a sudden it seemed like the best idea in the world to pretend to be um, the chairman and to have maybe a bit of a 
laugh with the CEO um, to trick him. And this was eight o'clock in the evening. So I'm there trying to kind of imagine what the scenario would be if I was the CEO of bank. And this is where I'm stretching a bit because I've, you know, I'm not a CEO. I've never worked in a bank. Um, I've never had an AGM. I kind of was conjuring up these very caricaturish images of um, them both sat there with these uh, whiskey glasses in, you know, a very darkened club or something, or had they just gone their separate ways? I wasn't to know. I thought no harm in sending an email. So surely nobody's been arrested for kind of just sending a, a fake email. So I thought, well, what would a chairman say? Um, and a chairman was chosen on purpose because obviously I'd chosen the CEO at work because of the the dynamics there. I, you know, I got to not abuse, but I got to borrow my CEO's power over the people he was contacting, that kind of dynamic. So if you're contacting a CEO, I struggled to think how I could do it. And I thought, well, if I go for a chairman, it probably means I can get away with language that's a bit more effusive and doesn't have to be any, you know, I can maybe speak in riddles. I was kind of going off bits of films. I'd see <laughs> all this other stuff. Um, I, obviously, this was early days, so I hadn't even had a chance to kind of try out different um, different tactics, I guess, and different ways of trying to encourage trust. But I quickly decided the premise of what I wanted to say was, tough day, but I'm by your side type thing. I thought that's a chairman thing to say. Yeah. So I... Googled um, Latin phrases, quickly looked down them to see which one I could pick for a subject line because I thought a bit of Latin, that's probably going to add a bit of um, credence to it. Um, and I picked out a detail from the news story, which was somebody who'd heckled um, the CEO at, at the actual event. I thought well, that's a kind of hyper-personalized bit of information. So I just dropped in the name and made a reference to how brusque he was and then hit send. and then sat back and by now my girlfriend had noticed that I was up to no good. Her radar was <laughs> on, I guess. Um, and she's like, what are you up to? <laughs> I'm sure she said your heart rate's gone right up. And I just said, I was just doing something, you know, nothing to, nothing to worry about. I'll, um, I'll explain after. And, and she was fine with that. Um, and I put her phone down and then I saw the, the screen light up and this was quite quick. This was Less than two minutes, I would say. So I, I could kind of guess that it, lighting up was associated with me just sending out that email. I thought, oh, it might be a bounce back. Because this is the first time I'd ever tried to contact um, the CEO of a bank. I didn't know if they, you know, what systems they had. My kind of view on security at the time was minimal. It was less than average, I would say. So I just presumed that banks would have things that stopped this. I didn't know what they would be, but I just presumed they would be there. But I read the reply and I had to take an instant judgment. I thought, no, no the, you know, he's got no benefit of saying this to me if he doesn't believe it's me. He just would have not replied or he would have said maybe something not so nice. And, and that was the exciting bit then. That was the kind of thinking by the seat of your pants and trying to realize that I've got that bit of trust and knowing that I wanted to take it in a bit of a weird direction because that would make me happy. Because, um, you know, if I just asked him to print something out to print a number 54, but, you know, that's not really going to be enough for me. I sort of wanted him to accept that I was saying some slightly weird things or sending him mm -hmm. poems which had acrostics down the side and stuff like that. And it was successful, I guess. And I don't think he knew until... The next day when I emailed him as myself um, and I made a reference to old slow hand is back, I think, because he'd, he'd referenced Eric Clapton uh, to the chairman. So uh -huh. yeah, it was a bit of a spur of the moment thing, I guess, but I did have some history on how to, you know, quickly set up a Gmail account and guess CEO's email addresses and stuff like that. Um, and then I wanted to share it, I guess. I wanted to... Um, more people say that I was really good at it, I guess. <laughs> so, so what was his response? Um, there was no response there. He responded to the Financial Times' is reporter, though. Uh, this is because the next day I, I set up um, a Twitter account. I wasn't even on Twitter at the time. Um, as the email prankster, I didn't use my actual name. And I uploaded the screen grabs and I sat back at work and yeah, I was all excited, but absolutely nothing. I didn't use a hashtag. I had no followers. I didn't really understand that you couldn't just 
release something and then it would get some cadence behind it. So I thought, I'm going to have to give this a bit of a push. So I noticed a few um, reporters had their DMs open. So I, I dropped a few people screen grabs and the guy from the Financial Times was like, is this real? And I just said, yeah, here's the here's the logins for the account. You, you can have a look. And before I knew it, that was published. And then lots of other publications started picking up on it. And I thought, you know, this is, this is probably the most exciting thing that ever happened to me in, <laughs> in recent time. Um, and I guess I got very protective of that and thought, you know, how can I, how can I find a cover for doing more of this? <laughs> um, how can I kind of justify it? And I thought, well, you know, I need a theme maybe. I've done one bank, maybe I'll try another. And so then I went on to the Bank of England and, and that was successful. And I thought, well, you know, I've got to think a bit bigger now. Let's try some banks in America, um, try a few celebrities. And then I guess the culmination of that was the White House which was definitely, it definitely got me noticed at work um, for all the wrong (laughs) reasons. My computer did get sent off for forensic testing. (laughs) I was sent home, um, temporarily suspended. Uh, I think they just worried that, you know, oh God, if he's done this, then what else has he been downloading onto his computer? Right, yeah. And all this stuff. And obviously got a clean bill of health because I wouldn't have even known how to do that if I could. But I did accidentally send an email from my, work account to the White House at one stage. So um, I guess, you know, classic insider threat, you know, somebody has a bit of a change in their life and becomes a little bit wayward with what they're sending out. When I was suspended, I actually drove um, home with the biggest smile on my face ever because I'd felt trapped by a job I loved, but I began to hate. Um, and I knew that, you know, that, that bridge was burnt. So in a way, um, that was also another you know, if I was going for a more of a, a Felma, Felma and Louise start to my film, well, no, they drove off a cliff, didn't they? Um, you know, it would just be me driving off from there. And in the end, I just, you know, I resigned. Afterwards, I could see, because obviously I, I was too obsessed with what I was doing. Um, I could see why for a company it would be tricky. You know, if somebody's doing this stuff that is getting that much attention, it, it can mm-hmm. be very polarizing. Um, with, with potential clients, I guess. So I fully understood that why they got a bit um, worried. Yeah, that, I think that makes sense. Why don't we go back real quick? I want to have you flesh out the White House story. What led up to that? Who did you impersonate? Who did you send things to? What were the responses and and so on? I sense that my time was starting to be up. Um, I'd, I'd done quite a few banks in America and, and the headlines now were like hackers <laughs> targeting CEOs of the world's biggest banks. People were getting too curious about who, who I was as a real person. Obviously people around me knew that, but it hadn't actually uh, made it out into the media yet. And they got very curious. Um, certain publications, very curious indeed. Um, so I thought, well, you know, everything that I'd done, it had to be just a little bit trickier, a little bit harder than the, the sort of prank that I did before. I like to try something new, um, try and make it more complex because it was all done on my phone. Uh, well, 99% of it, at least none of it was sort of done on a laptop in a basement anywhere. Sometimes I was, you know, holding shopping outside the changing room. Um, you know, my girlfriend was trying on clothes and I was, you know, emailing back to someone because a lot of my later pranks were based in America. So you know, I had to, <laughs> had to make adjustments for that. Um, but yeah, I kind of thought, you know, you've got to go big or go home. What would be the, and it was a very kind of James Bond look or outlook that I took on um, how I'd pick my, not victim, but collaborators. Um, you know, I even tried like Fort Knox and, and places like that. I got no reply. They must have pretty good seg, to be honest. But yeah, I thought, you know, let's let's try the White House. And I actually, I was looking through some of my screen grabs um, the, the other day and I noticed that I'd, I'd got a bounce back from like president at whitehouse.gov or whatever. So I'd obviously been clutching at straws a bit at the beginning. Um, I kind of look back on that now. Uh, <laughs> not embarrassed, but, you know, it shows the naivety I had. I was trying to figure out what the email would be. And occasionally, if I couldn't quite get a handle on it, I would 
then use Google. Never any kind of invasive stuff. It was all just open source things that anyone could get hold of. When it turned out the domain name for the White House was pretty well published. Some roles are fairly well shielded, but there'll always be somebody there in PR or media that's, you know, their addresses maybe on a PDF somewhere. I managed to figure out what I thought the, the domain was, and the, the president and the vice president have slightly different ones, two different offices. Um, and I, I Googled who was in the administration. I knew that Trump was in power. I thought, you know, I need a bit of a, a cyber slant to this. I didn't hold out much chance of getting Trump's email address. There was just so many <laughs> different connotations. I just gave up there and thought it's easier to go for somebody who's going to be a bit more of a, a known regular email user. And second one down was the home, home security? No, home Homeland Security. Homeland, yes. Oh yeah. my God. Sorry, Tom. Tom, Tom Bossett, if you're listening. Yeah, head of Homeland Security and on the Atlantic Council and he'd been in uh, Bush's sort of things as well. Um, so he was kind of in charge of cyber and in charge of steering safety for America. And this was a kind of a, a thing for me that this would be quite interesting because nobody will know more about uh, threats than, than Tom. You know, can I trick him? could he be tricked type thing um and i knew that i'd, I'd been able to do it uh, with other people and i wasn't obviously asking for any login details and stuff like that but i did think it was a kind of interesting case study to see how anyone can be kind of diffused from taking on a wary outlook to an email so i, I thought right i'm going to be jared kushner um he just seemed like an interesting character <laughs> We'll be right back after this word from our sponsor. And now we return to our sponsor's question about forms of social engineering. Know Before will tell you that where there's human contact, there can be con games. It's important to build the kind of security culture in which your employees are enabled to make smart security decisions. To do that, they need new school security awareness training. See how your security culture stacks up against Nobefore's free phishing test. Get it at nobefore.com slash phishing test. That's nobefore.com slash phishing test. Welcome back. So I, I thought, right, I'm going to be Jared Kushner. Um, he just seemed like an interesting character. <laughs> there was no more reason than that. Um, and then I put uh, Tom Bossett's name and Jared's name into a Google News search and the kind of first article that came up. And in a way, this was reverse. This was using the same tactic that I use with the bank to kind of look at the, the most latest news article um, just to find this little hook, this little thing that ties the two people together because I found out time and time again that it's almost like a skeleton key when you can use something like that. It makes it seem such a hyper-personal email that it doesn't have any resemblance to, especially if you're not asking for anything uh, straight out of the box. It doesn't yeah. resemble a threat. So it, that, that, that always, uh, for me, is, is kind of um, a bit of a golden touch. So I, I just thought, right, they've both been, they've both been to Iraq. Um, I thought, right, how can I kind of work this back? I'm, I'm going to invite him to a party because I didn't want to, you know, do anything that got uh, <laughs> Homeland Security coming after me. So I thought, right, I'll invite him to a party, um, you know, stick with my MO, which I'd, I'd done so many times. And being in Iraq, I thought, actually, I can phrase it as uh, the food at the party will be as good as that which we ate in Iraq. I didn't specifically say they ate together because I didn't know that they ate under the same roof or at the same table. But I knew that if they were out there, they would have had to have eaten food. Okay, I don't want you to miss this. What James stumbled upon here is the power of both specificity and ambiguity. And he wove them together masterfully. He made the reference that they were both in Iraq. That's specificity. And then he referred to the food 
and he said that the food at this upcoming party will be at least as good as what they had in Iraq. Now, James doesn't know if the food that they had in Iraq was good or bad. If the food was bad, then somebody reading the email would say, oh, this is a joke. And that would create a bonding experience between the two because it was so bad and we like to revel with each other and how bad things are. And if the food was good, well, then it's a promise of something good to come. So that kind of rang true, I think. And then Tom replied and he was up for the <laughs> he was up for coming to the party. And he even sent me his his personal email address if I, you know, wanted to get in touch with him again. Um, I did actually uh, send him an email when I did my first uh, lot of awareness content. I was just kind of showing him that good things do come out of um, kind of slightly weird situations. I've not heard back yet. <laughs> so, yeah. And then Tom was the kind of, I guess he was the the, the kind of fairy on top of the tree, but um, the Anthony Scaramucci one was probably the more technically tricky i guess um and just more fun because he was angry <laughs> and mm. uh, jake tapper on cnn was like that guy was like really angry you made him really angry and it hadn't actually occurred to me at the time and i was actually in a bit of a bad mood when i was <laughs> i was like method acting but the, the method was me yeah. i was in a bit of a bad mood when i was um writing the email so i was actually quite tough and i did find that you could be quite bold sometimes and quite gutsy and people would sort of um, respond to it, I guess. There was an interesting part where Anthony, I, I kind of pushed him and then he reached out to John Huntsman Jr. Uh, another email address. And that was me as well. I contacted him just to have some um, redundancy. I contacted him as John Huntsman Jr. as well. So I pushed him as one character and he'd reached out on you know same phone but it was a different uh, mail app to john huntsman asking if he was around can i have a chat um and it was that that was the key point where i thought hold on a minute if you know somebody with a ton of money and a bank of people in a nation state somewhere is, is doing this this would be scary because i'm experimenting here on my phone watching netflix and i've got this uh, administration member um believing i'm two different people um so yeah that was a, a real kind of dawning moment and that was kind of the beginning of the end because my real identity got out and it just it didn't uh, work anymore yeah what was the pretext with scaramucci um i was ryan's prebus there's been a bit of a, a niggle between them i mean he came back at me saying to quote Othello and, and things like this and it got really confusing because um, it was another friend of Anthony's that uh, I'd only used that email address with Anthony and, and uh, somebody else that was I think he was some sort of publicist he emailed me um, thinking that I was um, Rince Priebus as well and it, I was like oh my god how is this happening <laughs> how's he got this because I didn't know who he was um, and then in the end Jake Tapper ended up on there and he's like yeah he's, he's it got very confusing anyway and those emails were being forwarded around quite a bit then yeah yeah i think that's exactly what happened but i was trying to get him to say stuff on um, twitter and things like that and i did get people to post gifs and stuff uh, one of uh, donald trump's lawyers uh, michael cohen he posted a gif uh, which i sent to him as eric and yeah it was all kind of proof of concepts to see if it if it would work rather than it being you know horrendous uh, to be honest that was 2017 i would be really scared to do anything like that nowadays because things just seem to have changed one small ripple in a, in a pond online nowadays can have um really dramatic consequences i think that much has changed to your to your knowledge and understanding did anything that you did at that time break the law um, yeah, I mean, I had Ty Cobb, who was the White House um, counsel. Uh, he said it was a federal offense, I think, to impersonate a administration member or something mm. like that. Um, but I didn't care, <laughs> to be honest. I was at that point in my life. And in a way, it was the uncashable check because I knew that 
they weren't really going to want to have me in a courtroom uh, being questioned about what I'd said and the crazy things that people had taken as true. So in a way, I knew I'd built in that little bit of insurance and, and never once did any law enforcement officer or um, anyone like that ever contact me. And I managed to get my um, US visa afterwards as well, working visa. So they didn't put me on any kind of lists or anything. And the interesting thing with the White House was I, I did the the first kind of batch of uh, pranks. And then I went back and um, did some more um display name deceptions about 35 days later, I think it was, uh, just to see if if it was still possible to to do it. And I actually used my email prankster.co.uk domain name. I just changed the actual display name, but the domain was my email prankster one. And I still managed to chat to um, Sarah Sanders and a few others. So that was 34 days later. And I don't know if this is the case of anyone that's um, been tricked over email and you know they, they, they just want to forget about it rather than learn from it. It's important to stop here and reinforce a key truth that James hit on. It worked in his favor for this instance and was relatively harmless, but shame and fear and embarrassment can often be the enemies of good security. We need to find ways to encourage people to report when they've accidentally clicked on something or when they've accidentally done something wrong. James was counting on human nature being what it is, that we don't want to admit when we've been scammed, that we're, we're ashamed of that or we're embarrassed by it. But as a society and in your organization and mine, we need to find ways to flip the script on that. We need to put processes and standards in place that encourage a culture of proactive reporting. And that means that we need to be intentional. We have to be encouraging. We need to support people who come forward and we need to applaud those with the strength to do so. I kind of got the feeling that if they made a fuss about it, that would be um, a loss of face for them rather than being addressing any real issue so i was a bit worried by that i guess especially if you know they've got alien technology surely that's stopping some emails with the display name stuff i'm wondering how many of the responses you were getting were coming from a mobile phone as opposed to a laptop or something where you see the display name and then you might also be seeing the email next to it but on a mobile that's almost always just hidden yeah, completely. And I would purposely try and um, coincide a lot with times when I thought people would be out and about. And I think this yeah. is why lawyers were always so easy to um, get hold of, because they were always going from one place to another. They were always on a phone. They just have to read stuff and, and forward it on. And um, that, that that caused problems. And it caused problems for, for one lawyer when um, he didn't clear out his autofill on, uh, whichever he was using, I mm. would say. Um, and he ended up forwarding, after I'd tricked him, he ended up forward, forwarding a Senate document meant for Jared Kushner. He sent it to me. Whoops. To be fair, a lot of the email stuff, as I've learned more about um, email security and stuff like that, I've been able to go back with completely different ways of looking at what I did and, and trying to see what I can bring from it into things that I do now, I guess. Um, I want to ask one Question, you may not have an answer for this or you may not want to share it, but what is one story around this time that you wish you could forget? Oh. I think, I actually think um, the Harvey Weinstein one was a, a step too, too far, I think. Um, Give some context there. What 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 was the prank? It was when he initially um, was facing some charges, I think, and it, it sort of completely lowered up. And it was the very early stages. And the the feeling on Twitter and places like that, because I spent a lot of time on Twitter after that was where I kind of grew my initial following. Um, so the, I was kind of hardwired into the, the news and um, you know the, the kind of emotions on there and it seemed like he was going to be able to get away with 
stuff because he was rich and I guess there was a bit of a social justice warrior that got under my skin and I thought um, you know let's try and I don't even think I've thought it through that well um, but I contacted two lawyers of his as him um, I contacted him um, and to me that's just that was edging into guerrilla journalism that was touching on stuff mm-hmm. that um, wasn't part of the script I guess in a way I was still you know experimenting with could the email prankster continue in any way shape or form because um, you know part of me didn't want to let it go I'd enjoyed doing it I wish I could have done one a year and then vanished and kept it super mysterious for like 50 years but that's just not me What was the the thing that made you decide to pack it up and say, I'm just not going to do this anymore? It was realizing that me and uh, what I can, or what I'm willing to, um, the consequences that I'm willing to accept and not those that my family or, uh, you know, people around me and care for me are willing to accept. My mum wasn't the biggest fan. Um, and I did feel a bit hard done by because it's like, you know, I, I kind of didn't care. I just didn't care at all. I never lost a minute's sleep and I never saw any bad things coming from it, I guess. Um, whereas, you know, it was potentially going to start hurting um, family members and some of the media was mistaking out my ex girlfriend's house and it was all getting a bit too, a bit too real because my real identity was being mixed into it. I mean, obviously the email prankster was James Linton. That is a, that is a given, but you know, it was nice to be able to hide behind that. Yeah. And yeah, I, in a way. And I think the, the, the thing that dawned on me once I worked in uh, Infoset for a little while, I was fairly ego driven back then. And then in Infoset, you kind of learn that your ego sort of has to take a complete back seat. It doesn't matter what, political persuasion you are or things like that you know security should be a universal thing that you know you, you just you're trying to make it more secure against people that are trying to rip off people you love people you know people you don't know it, it's as binary as that you're either doing that or you're not so yeah it was a bit of a growing up moment i guess um and i'm, I'm really glad it stopped when it did because it, it's quite tight i couldn't do it now i don't think i wouldn't have the wouldn't have the uh a Fitbit break. What's the biggest lesson that you learned about yourself or about human nature in general? Um, I guess in a way, I, I, I always thought that I kind of finished at my boundary wall. Once I kind of disconnected from advertising, it had no glamour to me at all. I saw so many more valuable things I could do and, and moving in, into InfoSec. I could genuinely make somebody a bit safer. I could genuinely do that. I could, I could do it to two, three, four, five, or however many people. And that, and that was quite a quite a strange feeling, really. And it was like I had to question if I was this person that wanted to do this stuff, you know. And I, th- I think a bit of that is this kind of masking that um, obviously autistic people can do, where I, I wasn't sure if I was sort of kidding myself that I was – you know, enjoying being a bit more kind of philanthropic or doing this thing that benefited other people. But I think with growing up and all the other stuff, then it did. It just it became something that um, felt good to do, I guess. And that was that was a new feeling for me at the time. Tell everybody a little bit about what you're doing now, since you're you're kind of taking all the lessons from that time period and then flipping them over to teach people how to better secure them themselves and think different about the interactions that they're in and all that. Yeah. Well, so the pranks finished, I kind of, um, was super lucky. managed to get in at, um, kind of Silicon Valley based email security company, working on a pretty cool project where they were social engineering, uh, BEC actors. Quick acronym check here. BEC stands for Business Email Compromise. 
It's a type of phishing attack where the scammer uses email to impersonate someone in authority within an organization, like a CEO or CFO. And then under that guise, they send requests to other people within the organization, asking them to do things like initiate money transfers or buy gift cards or send confidential data or intellectual property and more. Business email compromise is now responsible for billions of dollars of loss each year. And you know, getting information from them, basically. And it was a, a semi-automated system that they were expanding and growing and we were able to collect intelligence and uh, capture mailboxes and go through those and i was even sending stuff to the secret service i mean how cool is that um it was like something that i may have done as a prank i was actually doing for my job that was a bit of a pinch me moment um and then sadly the pandemic came around uh, i was maybe redundant and then i was on the outside of the industry again not having a clue <laughs> you know i'd not looked around i'd not looked at i looked at a few job listings when i was first made redundant and they were scary as anything it was like nope can't mm. do that can't do that can't do that and i had to be honest with myself i was like you know i'm fed up of always having to kind of try and force myself to learn an entire thing and i thought no i'm actually going to be easy on myself here i've got the the sort of prank side of things um, i've got the knowledge of the bc stuff because you know i've, I've been exchanging emails with thousands of scammers uh literally thousands as well um if i can't come up with some sort of uh, awareness thing after that there must be something wrong and i, I kind of i did see it as a step down i saw awareness as this sort of little dumpy thing sat, sat at the side i'm sorry i'm sorry perry no, um, no problem. I was like, I just, I just did not get it. I thought, you know, threats is, you know, or leather jackets and aviators and awareness is, I don't know, kind of um, leather patches on the elbows and stuff. But once I started digging into it a bit, I was like, hold on a minute. It's been amazing how much some very simple premises um, have been. Because I wanted to get into psychology when I was, again, that was one of the things that I wanted to do when I couldn't traverse into university so i was all of a sudden i was able to combine my design advertising graphics and visual storytelling with my actual stories and bringing in elements of uh, what i'd actually seen with my own eyes and it, it felt good that i could say something to somebody and know it is true you cannot believe me but i know it's true and and that became a real exciting thing to explore i guess and awareness has been one of the most amazing surprises in many respects the number of parts to what seems very simple um it's just i don't know i think it's going to keep me busy <laughs> until um yeah they carry me off basically but yeah it's 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 um hugely interesting though as you yourself know well, I hope that you enjoyed that interview with James Linton. I've gotten to know James pretty well over the past several months, and I'm constantly impressed by his desire to use his experiences from his past to move forward and to promote positive change. I think that we'd be wrong to dismiss everything that James did and just say, oh, those were pranks, because what he really did is he found ways to quickly win trust or provoke reactions from some of the most powerful people in the world. And he did all that using basic email addresses that he could quickly spin up. These weren't lookalike domains or hacked email accounts or anything technically sophisticated. In many cases, the domains he was sending from should have been a clear giveaway that the email wasn't legitimate. This all came down to display name deception and just a little bit of research to help gain credibility. And as you heard him say, he did this while watching Netflix with his girlfriend on the couch or laying on his bed or standing outside of dressing rooms, really anywhere he could from his phone. There was no heavy infrastructure here. There was no technologically sophisticated hacking. This was just an email address and a mind. 
And I also think that one of the main reasons that people fell for his pranks was because they were viewing and interacting with these emails using mobile phones, which usually only show the display name, not the full email address. And so the very tools that these powerful people relied on failed them. For me, as I think about this, it's hard to imagine what could have happened if James wasn't just trying to have fun with some simple pranks. I think someone with malicious intent might have been able to achieve some pretty chilling results. And with that, thank you so much for listening and thank you to my guest, James Linton. I've loaded up the show notes with more information about James as well as all the relevant links and references for the information we covered today. So be sure to check those out. If you've been enjoying 8th Layer Insights and you want to know how you can help make the show successful, there are two big ways that you can do so, and both are super important. First, if you haven't yet, go ahead and take just a couple seconds to give us five stars and to leave a short review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other podcast platform that allows you to do so. That helps others who stumble upon the show have the confidence that this show is worth their most valuable resource their time. The second big way you can help is by telling someone else about the show. Word of mouth referrals are priceless. They are really the lifeblood of helping people find good podcasts. If you haven't yet, please go ahead and subscribe or follow wherever you like to get your podcasts. And if you want to connect with me, feel free to do so. You'll find my contact information at the very bottom of the show notes for this episode. The show was written, recorded, sound designed, and edited by me, Perry Carpenter. Artwork for 8th Layer Insights is designed by Chris Michowski at ransomware.net, that's W-E-A-R, and Mia Rune at miarune.com. The 8th Layer Insights theme song was composed and performed by Marcus Moscat. Until next time, I'm Perry Carpenter, signing off.